found in John's Gospel. We're reading John chapter 4, uh, verses 43 to 54. Would you please stand together as we uh, read the Lord's Word? John chapter 4, verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. When he came again to Canaan and Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and to heal his son, <clears throat> for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he believed himself and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Earlier we sang this, the hymn, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken by... Henry, Henry Light. And I just want to remind us of the glorious truths about fatherhood that we find in these verses. He says, I have called thee Abba Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. And he says, think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine. Light also wrote the popular hymn, Abide With Me, that's comforted people at funerals for almost 200 years. He also wrote, Praise my soul, the King of heaven. That one includes the words, Father-like he tends and spares us. Well our feeble frame he knows. In his hands he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. It seems that Henry Light had a profound understanding of God as his heavenly Father. And from a human perspective, it might seem odd to us that he would be able to understand such powerful and profound truths because Henry Light's own father was cold and unfeeling. Light's father left his mother and remarried and, and sent Henry off to boarding school. And the occasional letter that were written to Henry by his father, he'd never ever addressed him as son. He addressed him as though Light was his nephew, and he signed it, your uncle. He wouldn't even call his own son a son. And that's true of so many who, who really don't understand from a human perspective what it means to have a godly, loving father. And if that was true of anybody, it was true of Henry Light. So how then could Henry Light understand 
God as his father. How was it that, that his own corrupt earthly father had not corrupted his understanding of a heavenly father? Henry Light knew God as his heavenly father because he knew it by faith. Henry Light saw God as his father with eyes of faith. This morning we're going to see how a miraculous sign helps add a royal official and his family to the list of witnesses that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, while at the same time bearing testimony against those who reject Jesus. It shows the kind of faith that God requires, not a fickle faith that depends on signs, but the kind of faith that simply takes God at his word. So when I began writing this, this when I began writing this sermon and the, uh, the bulletin went to press, I was going to call it God Our Father. But I instead would like to, to change the title, and I think you'll see why as we go on. The title now is Believing Isn't Seeing. Believing Isn't Seeing. So the things that that I spoke about, the things that Henry Light understood about God the Father, he didn't see with, with natural eyes. He saw with the eyes of faith. And the same is true of all genuine faith. We, we don't believe so that we see. We, we, our, 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 our sight doesn't create our faith. What we see can, can, be a, can provide a spark for our faith. But if it just stays there, it, it proves itself to be false faith. It's not a genuine faith that relies on sight. Seeing can lead to believing, but true faith isn't grounded on seeing. It doesn't depend on seeing. Theologian Gerald Borchardt explains that the point of this story is that it illustrates a new dimension of believing, namely a believing without the immediacy of seeing. Accordingly, it foreshadows the concluding words of Thomas about believing and seeing from John 20, 29. Now, most modern Bibles put in a, a paragraph break or a, a subject heading break between verses 45 and 46, but I think the division is actually better between verses 42 and 43. This narrative centers around two sons, the son of Joseph the carpenter and the dying son of a nobleman. And this ultimately points to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So first of all, in verses 43 to 45, we see the reception that Jesus received in his own country, the son of Joseph. So these verses mark the transition between Jesus' ministry to the Samaritans and his return to Galilee. He'd been with the Samaritans for two days, and that trip, as we remember, had been very fruitful as many Samaritans became believers in Jesus Christ. John points to the reason for his return to Galilee in his parenthetical comment in verse 44. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Again, that little preposition for is really important. 
But on the face of it, if you, if you look at that verse from outside its proper context, it really doesn't make any sense. It's as though Jesus, if you look at it just from, from in that sense, without really thinking about what it actually means, it looks as though Jesus had no honor in Galilee, so he returned to Galilee. And this has been uh, the, the interpretation of, of many commentators who, who look at this passage thinking that it's because Jesus wanted to withdraw, he wanted to avoid um, conflict, so he returned to Galilee. Now it's true that he did that earlier, the beginning of John chapter 4, but the immediate context shows that Jesus had a different purpose in returning to Galilee. In verse 44, John is referencing a statement that Jesus made in Matthew 13, 57, where Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Jesus there was prophetically uh, aligning himself and identifying himself with the Old Testament prophets who had also been rejected by the Jewish people. Again and again, the Jews had rejected what the prophets had to say. They treated them shamefully, and they even killed some of them. For example, think of, of Jeremiah, who was from Anathoth. He was being threatened by the men of Anathoth. The men from his own hometown were threatening to kill him, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hand. Jeremiah 11.21 In Matthew 13, Jesus says these things after having performed many miraculous signs in Galilee and teaching the people in, in parables. Matthew 13 includes the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds. The people liked the signs, but they didn't like the parables. And it wasn't because they didn't understand the parables that they didn't like them. What they didn't like was the parables that they did understand because those parables indicted them. Those parables showed that they were guilty before a holy God. Jesus then traveled to Nazareth in Matthew 13, 54, and after teaching in the synagogue, was rejected by his own people. So they said in verses 54 to 56, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not, this, is not his mother Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters here with us? Where does this man get all these things? They took offense at him. And this is when he said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and his own household. And Matthew testifies that Jesus didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. But this wasn't the first time that Jesus had been rejected in Nazareth. Earlier in his mystery ministry, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus went to the synagogue in Nazareth and read Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to pro proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus then astonished his hearers by saying at verse 21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Again, they marveled, saying, Is not this Joseph's son? Again, looking at things from an earthly perspective, they rejected him. To them, he was just another Jewish boy. To them, he was just a lowly carpenter's son. 
Jesus responded to words with words very similar to those that we find in Matthew 13 and John 4:44. He said, "Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown." They became so angry that they drove Jesus out of the city and up onto the cliff where they were going to and they were going to cast him off the cliff to kill him. Talk about dishonor. But somehow, Jesus just simply walked out of their midst. His time wasn't yet. This event in John's account of the gospel takes place between the events of Luke chapter 4 and Matthew 13, but it's probably closer to the former. It's, this is The events of John chapter 4 are still relatively early in Jesus' ministry. This is, the only, this is only the second miraculous sign that he had performed in Galilee. The first we talked about several weeks ago, that of changing the water to wine in Cana. However, Jesus wasn't just wasn't sorry. However, Jesus was rejected by his by the people, by the masses, by the majority throughout his ministry. This wasn't the only time that he had been rejected. Of course, it would reach its culmination at the cross when the Jewish people shouted, "Crucify him!" and chose a robber, Barabbas, instead of the Most High God. But here, the people rejected Jesus. So we need to ask the question, why is it that a prophet doesn't have honor at home? When you've seen someone grow up beside you, he really somehow seems less than impressive. John MacArthur says that that's like familiarity brings contempt. It's like the only experts are the ones who come from out of town. It's as though a foreigner somehow becomes an authority just because of the fact that he's from somewhere else. There's not going to be any honor for Christ, MacArthur says, where he grew up because these people are going to say, that's nobody, that's Jesus. I remember when he was just over there pounding stuff in his father's, car, in his father's shop. What does this Jesus have to say to me? But it wasn't just the people outside his family. It wasn't just the people of the town who rejected him. In John chapter 7, verse 5, we find that not even his brothers believed in him. His own brothers who had grown up in his house with him. Imagine the blindness that would cause them not to see Jesus, who he really was. He exhibited none of the selfishness, none of the disobedience, none of the fleshly behavior that characterizes every other human being on the earth. He didn't get into petty squabbles with them, not even once. But still, they didn't believe in him because their blindness was spiritual. But then if this passage that I'm talking to you about this morning is all about rejection, or largely about rejection, then how do we explain the next verse? John 4.45, where it says, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So on the one hand, in verse 44, Jesus is saying that a prophet is, is not without honor, that a prophet is going to be rejected. But then in verse 45, it says that they welcomed him. Again, if you think about things just on a superficial level, this doesn't make sense. It's even led some, some very liberal theologians to think that this is a gloss, that, that somehow there's a mistake here. Or maybe that, that 
John is borrowing from some earlier tradition, and it's a different story that, that John is, is putting here, and he somehow got, didn't get his facts straight. Or maybe they're thinking, and they will even claim sometimes, that, that both, both John and the Synoptic Gospels all got their facts wrong because there, there was actually some earlier tradition that really had nothing to do with Jesus. What do you believe? Do you believe that this really is God's authoritative word of word? Do you believe that, that it is sufficient, without error, inspired? If you do, then, then there has to be an explanation. This does make sense. The Bible never contradicts itself. And John was no fool. He's not going to contradict himself twice within two verses. There's something else going on here. And again, we need to look at the context in order to be able to understand what that really is. What's happening here is that Jesus, remember, he has just moved from the region of the Samaritans, and then he's coming back to his own people in Galilee. He was rejected repeatedly by the Galileans, but amazingly had great success with the Samaritans. Remember, the sinful woman at the well understood things that were lost on Nicodemus, the wise teacher of Israel. The Samaritans of the village believed that and testified that Jesus was the Savior of the world, while the Jews viewed him with disdain. Despite all of the things that Jesus had done in Judea, he isn't received back in Galilee as a hometown or homeland hero, quite the opposite. They receive him, but only according to the flesh. They welcome him, but only to a certain extent. D.A. Carson explains it like this. Therefore, when he arrives, the Galileans welcomed him, not as the Messiah, but because they had seen all that he had done at the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And that's why Jesus says a few verses later in John 4.48, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. MacArthur describes this as unbelief. He describes this as the unbelief that says that, that the person doesn't convince me, the words don't convince me, but the miracles might convince me. And this is the kind of faith that the vast majority of those Galileans had. It points to the fickle faith that is based entirely on the signs that Jesus performed. John has already told us Jesus' appraisal of these things and of this faith in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Just turn back there. John 23... Sorry, John 2, 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he did no one to bear witness about him for he himself knew what was in man. To a certain extent, people believed in him, but Jesus knew what was really going on in their hearts. Throughout Jesus' ministry, crowds would come after him. Think about the 5,000 that followed him because they got fed. But just shortly thereafter, in John chapter 6, they rejected him when, when he laid down demands that they didn't understand. We'll look, about, look at that in a few weeks. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. 
he knew that they would ultimately reject him. So in verse 46, when he came again to Canaan and Galilee, where he had made the water wine, we read. This is the second of the miracles that Jesus did in Galilee. We talked about this, remember, a few weeks ago. Jesus had turned water to wine, but he had performed many signs in Jerusalem. Apart from the cleansing of the temple, we really don't know what exactly those signs were. But it testifies to what what John says in John chapter 20, verse 30, that Jesus did many other signs that are not written in this book. And so those things that he did in Jerusalem, of which these Galileans were witness, we'll have to wait until glory to find out what exactly they were. Of the turning water into wine, Leon Morris explains that he was turning the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity, the water of law into the wine of the gospel. And this was one of the biggest reasons why the Jews were rejecting him. Because they had, like so many, a legalistic faith that was based upon their performance, as though they could cleanse themselves through these outward cleansings and through outward obedience that had nothing to do with the hearts. In other words, Jesus was replacing the water of Jewish ceremonial law under the Old Covenant into the wine of the Gospel in the New Covenant. So now Jesus returns to this location to carry out another miraculous sign, but this one represents something quite completely different. In his first miraculous sign, Jesus chose to act at a time of celebration. In the second miraculous sign, he's choosing to act at a time of mourning. In one of the the saddest of all of life's moments, as a nobleman's son lay dying. So let's turn to his part in the story. The son of a nobleman in verses 46 and following. In verse 46, we find out that there's an official from Capernaum whose son was gravely ill. Now, this narrative is is very similar to the one that we find in Matthew chapter 8, but they they differed in some key areas. Now, spoiler warning, Jesus heals both times. But in Matthew 8, it was a Roman centurion whose servant was ill, whereas this time, it's a a high-ranking official in Herod's court whose own son was ill. Now, there's other important differences, and we're going to see these shortly. But the, the, the word that's translated official or nobleman is basilikos. Uh, he was a member of the, the court of Herod the Tetrarch. This is the same Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. This is the same Herod who would have a role in the, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ himself. Herod was a puppet king. He was installed by the Romans and was hated by the Jews. So this this man, this nobleman who was a member of Herod's court, came to Jesus. He was desperate. His own rank really meant little to him in the light of the dying of his son. Fathers, you you shudder to think about it. But argue that that there could be no greater pain 
than that of a, of a parent for a humanly from a human perspective no greater pain than that of, of a parent who loses the child especially when that that child is is dies outside of Christ what words of hope can you offer a parent in that circumstance so this man came to Jesus desperate, but, but he doesn't seem to have any true regard for who Jesus is. He just needs help. Having heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee, he was desperate enough to travel the 30 or so, mi- 30 or so kilometers from Capernaum to Cana to ask this humble carpenter, the son of a humble carpenter, for help. Now, I don't think the, the ESV captures the intensity of the desperation when it uses the verb to ask. Other Bibles use the word begged or implored or besought. He was desperate. His son was dying. And then Jesus replied in verse 48, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now this probably seems harsh or uncompassionate to our ears. And this desperate man comes to Jesus and he, and he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. It seems cold and unfeeling. It might even draw to mind the, the example of the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, who, who came to Jesus, seeking him, begging Jesus to, to heal her daughter who, who was oppressed with a demon. And Jesus said to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. But Jesus, whenever he spoke, was with intentionality. He had a message there, and he had a message here. Jesus' words to the nobleman had a purpose. They were not meant for the nobleman alone. The yous that are used here in, in this verse both times are plural. Jesus is not just addressing the official. He's addressing those who are gathered around him. Wherever he went, there were crowds following him. Jesus is saying, you people are not going to believe unless you see a sign. Unless you see a miracle, you're not going to believe in me. This is the central verse of the passage. D.A. Carson says, this statement dominates the account and reinforces the impression that the welcome of the Galileans accorded Jesus was fundamentally flawed. Based as it was on too great a focus on miraculous signs. Theirs was a faith of, of seeing is believing. But believing isn't seeing. Believing is not seeing. The official said to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. He thought Jesus needed to be physically present in order to heal his son. However, even in the incarnation of Jesus, having lowered himself, Jesus was somehow still omnipotent and omnipresent. Jesus was still able to heal no matter where the Son was. And here's where we see the biggest difference between this account and that of Matthew chapter 8. So please turn with me to to Matthew chapter 8. Verse 5. 
when the centurion comes to Jesus, he says in verse 6, Lord, my servant is paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus replied in verse 7, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. The Roman centurion didn't ask Jesus to come. He didn't consider himself worthy to have Jesus even enter under his roof. Now, perhaps the centurion had heard the testimony of what had happened here in John chapter 4. But Jesus commended him. Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So here is this Gentile soldier being, being lifted up by Jesus. His faith is being commended, while at the same time, Jesus is disdaining the so-called faith of his own people, the faith of the people of Israel. And Jesus went on, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is saying there that many Gentiles from all around the world will be worshipers of God in heaven, that they are true children of Abraham in fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. But, he's saying, many of the children of Israel who claim to be children of Abraham are not truly children of Abraham. They would be condemned to hell. And this difference also highlights the point that John or that Jesus was making in John chapter 4. That the faith that was demonstrated by the Galileans was not the kind of faith that he requires. The kind of faith that Jesus requires doesn't depend on seeing. So Jesus says to the nobleman in John 5 and John 4:50, "Go, your son will live." This is in the imperative mood. This is a command. Jesus isn't giving him just permission to go, as the NIV implies. Jesus is saying to him, go, your son will live. And the nobleman then took Jesus at his word and headed for home. What do you think was going on in this nobleman's mind? Do you think he was, was laughing for joy? Do you think he was crying out of gratitude? Was he 100% certain that his son was going to get better? While he was on his way, his servants met him and told him the good news. They told him that his son was recovering. So he had immediately headed back down to Capernaum and his servants had been heading the other direction. And they probably met somewhere in the middle. And so he asked the servants, at what hour did, the, did my son begin to get better? And the servants told him that it was the day before at the seventh hour, it was about one o'clock in the afternoon, that his fever had left him. The father knew that at, at, it was at that very moment when Jesus had said, your son will live, that the fever broke. And all of this points to who Jesus is. 
that Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 53, we find out that not only did the father believe, but his whole household believed. So what the nobleman had seen led to real faith. And not only for him, but real faith also for his whole household. This was the second sign that he did in Galilee. Last week, we, we spoke about, about felt needs and how a lot of preachers are preaching only to people's felt needs. And if it stays there, if it stays just on the, the surface level of felt needs, nobody will be saved. As I said last week, Jesus didn't come to give you your best life now. He didn't come to give you a sense of purpose. He didn't even come to, to relieve you from feelings of guilt. He didn't even come to primarily to heal from, from diseases. For those who truly have found faith in Christ, we will find our purpose. We will find true purpose as servants of Christ. We will be relieved of, of the weight of guilt. We might not have our spiritual, we might not, sorry, not, might not have our physical diseases healed, but we will have our most deadly disease healed. The disease of sin. And so this miracle showed that Jesus really was coming as he testified in Luke 4 in fulfillment of those prophecies from Isaiah that Jesus really was the suffering servant. That he really was coming to set the captives free. And this healing of a physical disease pointed to the healing of the disease of sin. Theologian Kenneth Gangles explains that wonders may produce awe, but words produce faith. We don't put too much weight on miraculous signs. These things can point us to God, but again from D.A. Carson, miracles cannot compel genuine faith. There are two classes of people who see Jesus' miracles, those who see and believe and those who see and don't believe. Many of you have friends and family members who, who knew what you were like before coming to Christ. And if, if you genuinely have come to Christ, then there will be a change in your life. Those people who are closest to you will have seen changes that are even more miraculous than Jesus healing this sick boy. When God takes a hard, cold, dead, rebellious heart out of a person and gives them instead a heart of love towards God and love towards people, this is a powerful miracle. And beloved, you have many examples. You have many, you have many examples of this miracle here in your midst in this church. You've seen it. You, you, you've seen people who, who used to love sin 
He used to love drugs and alcohol and cigarettes and pornography and lying and stealing and pride. And now they're lovers of Jesus Christ. And now they hate the things that they once loved. Again, that is a miracle. But these Galileans, even though they had seen the miracles, they still didn't believe. They still didn't believe. For example, in John 11, 45 to 46, we read, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They both saw the same miracles. Some believed in him, and some reported him to the Pharisees. But signs, again, they do have their place. For those who have eyes to see spiritually, the signs show. They demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. And when, the, these, when a person who has been acted upon by the Holy Spirit sees these things, when they see what Jesus does, when they read about what Jesus has done in Scripture, they see with the eyes of faith and they turn from sin. But for those in whom, those who still have a hard heart, they just do what they've always done. They reject Jesus. Jesus taught the disciples in John 14, 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In John 10, 37 and 38, Jesus told the Jews, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe in me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. They responded by trying to arrest him. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Beloved, do you need to see in order to believe? 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, We walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith for us. Now faith is the, insur- the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. When, David was, when Dave Griffiths was there in hospice, lying in that bed, wasting away, what was the ground of his hope? He hadn't seen heaven. He hadn't seen any any miracles like these people had seen. He had seen the miracle of of changed lives. He had seen the miracle of his own changed life. And so he looked forward to heaven. He got excited about heaven. Because he was hoping with the eyes of faith not with physical sight. Now, there's no rational reason to doubt that 2,000 years ago, there was a man named Jesus 
who was a carpenter, who was the son of Joseph the carpenter. There's plenty of evidence that Jesus walked through Galilee 2,000 years ago. Merely on a human level, we have the Bible as a witness. The Bible comprises eyewitness accounts in each of the four Gospels and in Acts, as well as the, the testimony of the, of the Apostle Paul. Remember, the Bible is not one book, but 66 books. 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. And all of these books testify that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In the Old Testament, it's with an anticipation of looking forward to the Jesus who had come. And then in the Gospels, in the beginning of Acts, we see what Jesus did for that brief time that he was here on the planet. And then the, the rest of the Bible is, is a looking back to what Jesus had done and a looking forward to, eagerly to his return. They all bear testimony. We also have extra-biblical sources, like the Roman historian Tacitus and the Jewish historian Josephus, both of whom wrote in the first century just a mere few years after the ministry of Jesus. But do you, like the Galileans, believe that Jesus was simply the son of Joseph? Or do you believe, like that Herodian official and his family, that Jesus really is the Son of God? You may say that you believe in him, but how you respond to him proves the nature of your faith. The way you respond to Jesus proves whether your faith is real or whether it's fickle. There's a big debate that's been, been raging for, for a number of years about whether you can be a, a Christian and not go to church. Be a Christian and, and not follow after Jesus, seek to follow after Jesus with your whole life. It's called the, the lordship debate. But if Jesus is not your Lord, he is not your Savior. Now, that doesn't mean that you are going to obey Jesus perfectly. But it means that your life is characterized by a desire to obey Jesus. By an ever-increasing hatred of those things that I was speaking about earlier, those things that you used to love. And one of the, the clearest ways we can know is how we respond to trials. So how do you respond when you don't see what God is doing? How do you respond when you don't understand his work? Think about the way that Wend responded to the death of Dave. By God's grace, she responded with the eyes of faith. She responded to this most difficult of trials by looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of her faith. With hope that was of the same kind as Dave's hope. That Dave had left this life to be with 
Jesus for all eternity, and one day that she too would leave this life to be with Jesus. Not primarily because of a reunion with Dave, but because of, of her union with Christ. The building code in many regions of Australia requires that homes be anchored firmly to their foundation with, with bolts and, and things that we don't, we don't have to use here. I know even just yesterday, I've, I've got a friend who's a, a pastor in Bundaberg, and, uh, and his wife was writing about how the, the, the rain that was coming down and that the storm that they were facing. Now, we don't have those types of storms here in Kelowna, but I'm try- you've probably seen them on TV. Those violent hurricanes. Think about Katrina and the devastation that that caused. Back in uh, 1996, I was camping in, uh, in a remote town in Western Australia called Exmouth. And, uh, and during that time, uh, we were evacuated to the town hall because of the threat of Hurricane, or rather Cyclone Olivia. And uh, I was camping, I was, I was in a tent. And so I was very eager to, uh, to leave and to, to go to the town hall. The, the town of Exmouth had actually been, bit, been built by the US Navy in World War II, so this, this town was bomb-proof. But I only found out even just yesterday, I didn't realize that this, this storm is a Category 4 storm. It produced the highest non-tornadic winds that have ever been known on Earth. The winds reached a record 408 kilometers an hour. Now, thankfully, we didn't have to find out whether Exmouth was really cyclone-proof because the, the hurricane veered off at the last minute and spared us. But when I think about what it would have been like trying to, to weather that storm in a tent, I'm reminded of the foolish man who built his house on the sand. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 8 that the foolish man who builds his house on the sand is the person that, that hears the word of God and doesn't do it. It's one thing to hear the word of God. These Galileans heard the word of God again and again and again. They even welcomed Jesus on a certain level. But they didn't do the word of God. They didn't do the word of God because they were not followers of Jesus. Jesus was not their Lord. Jesus was not their Savior. So how you're going to respond in the storms of life requires that you not only hear the word of God, but you respond to the word of God out of faith. Just like this this official, he took Jesus at his word and believed. He believed that Jesus really could heal his son even at a distance. But I need to ask you the question. Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins on that cross? Do you believe that Jesus rose again from the grave? 
And have you repented of your sin and received Jesus as your Lord as well as your Savior? Do you really believe that he who did not spare his son but graciously gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all good things? Do you believe that? Are you acting on that? And that is the measure of the reality of your faith. Let's pray together.